Welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates, travelers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. I didn't fit in America. With cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes. I quit the limiting stories. Really try to overcome that fear. And right there, for any of your listeners, a lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it. Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. Today I'm joined by my best friend, brother from another mother, the gentleman I've spent most of the significant moments of my life with doing amazing things. And uh, I'm so happy to finally get him on the show. It's been a few years now of trying, but he's a busy man here in Nicaragua. And now I'm here sitting right in front of him in his beautiful office on a beautiful beach where he's got a really cool life going for himself. And he's a huge inspiration to me. And he has been throughout my whole life. So it's really fun to get him on and talk about his life and how he got to this point. So welcome, John. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Chate. Yeah. I feel, I feel like there's been a lot of like um, like pressure on this particular conversation. Hence the reason we put it off because uh, we've imagined it so many different ways and so many different uh, different types of things that we could have talked about in every month or every year that goes by where we, where we wait. It seems like um, that story might have changed. So... Absolutely. I mean, there's a bunch of rabbit holes we can go down for this story because we spent so much time together doing fun things, doing hard things, doing things that like really shaped our lives. But I think let's just start kind of at the beginning to see where it goes because, I mean, we we all know that you've created an amazing thing here in Nicaragua. So let's give the audience kind of a, a little bit of your background, like where, where, where'd you grow up and what was your childhood like? Um pretty basic. I mean, I had my dad in the East Bay and I had my mom in Orange County where you and I know each other from. And we grew up together, man. Um, hanging out, skateboarding, rollerblading, <laughs> not proud to admit, but, and surfing, having fun, finding ways to get into trouble. So, um, yeah, really adventurous kids didn't do well in school. And I think that was kind of the, the determining factor that, pushed us into a alternative lifestyle that ultimately opened up these doors and windows. Um, I think both of us wouldn't, couldn't read so good. <laughs> we can read all right now. And, uh, I'm proud of that. Uh, math wasn't our strong point either. So I didn't even apply to college. I know, I know you took it further formal education. I had very little formal education. Um, so in those not being options, going to school, never took SATs, didn't want to know how stupid I really was. <laughs> Uh, then yeah, the alternative was leave America, leave the social structure that was ju- that was labeling and, and judging and, and choosing less desirable options for me, and uh, try my luck at the at the world. And what you find is when you go to places that are third world, you all of a sudden become a genius. So, <laughs> uh, you know, you're comparing yourself to people who have no schooling and have very little infrastructure and experience. So. Uh, in those places, I started feeling confident and, and smart and then enough of that ultimately. And, and then maybe you do become a little smart and confident. So that was, uh, that's, I guess the backbone of, of where I took my adult life and building business, which was never a plan for me. Right. Yeah. Let's talk about maybe that first time you really went out. I mean, I know through our growing up together, you had a, a very influential people in your lives. One being your dad, obviously, and one being your mom. And they both really pushed in different directions. And I mean, I know we both took a lot from your dad's sort of 
not disciplinarian, but he was very kind of always pushing us to go above and beyond athletically, physically demanding things. Like, would you say that kind of shaped your drive to really get out there and, and do things in an alternative way or, or not? I think he was, I remember my dad having very little, um, just kind of uh, direction for me, a lot of acceptance, you know, um, my dad is like by nature an academic, but he's, uh, but, um, he's a real self-taught individual and he thinks that no institution is, is built to, is built to, to make anybody. It's, uh, it's the person that contributes to an institution. And when I made decision, the decision to, to leave, you know, when I was 19, I, I took that trip, um, is, when I got nothing but support, you know, just like understanding and support. My mom was confused and upset, um, but my dad was kind of saw the bigger picture and, and realized the value in me leaving. And that was that trip. And then just for, for any listeners, like it was, it was a year dedication to a, a small house in the Caribbean side of Costa Rica in Puerto Viejo in 1999 that allowed uh, for that full evolution of believing that I no longer had to live in the United States that, um, that started the, basically the, the plan to, um, to just continue searching and realize. But I remember, I remember very particularly the, the processes after, after month three, trying to incorporate some of those lifestyles into what I could imagine myself doing when I went back to California. And then after month seven or eight, imagining how, um, you know, how I could partially live in California. And then ultimately after a full 12 months, knowing that, um, I didn't have to really live in California or the United States anymore. And I could live in Costa Rica or maybe somewhere else. So, and then started the the long worldwide journey that, you know, both of us took Mm -hmm. between, we drove a van from San Francisco down to Costa Rica and then on to Panama. I went and South America, six months gripping the coast, looking for places to live. And then you went on to Europe. I met you there, and then we did Eurasia, and then stayed in Asia. And that was, God, that was three plus years. Yeah, let's. I want to get into all oh, those yeah. details. Let's start though with giving everyone some perspective on you know what it took for you to make that first leap to Costa Rica, like how you moved all those pieces across the board in order to land in Costa Rica with a house and money to live for a year because you didn't go down there with the intention of working. So can we give somebody or the listeners an idea like how much you actually went down with Yeah, financially, uh, how I'm much sure you had saved and how you'd saved it? I think it was about a thousand bucks. And, um, and then I had prepaid for maybe I, I had rented a house for maybe 180 bucks a month and I had prepaid the year and that's how I locked myself into the year. And that was a good thing because throughout that, throughout that year, I would have probably left if I hadn't have have agreed and and prepaid for that. Um, but I remember it was working for my father in a, in a hardware store. My dad has a hardware store in Richmond, California. And I worked there after high school and was saving the money to leave. And I knew I needed to leave because people were asking me, um, if this was going to be my future. I mean, it seemed kind of obvious, you know, I was starting to shape up towards my dad and and, uh, I was learning the hardware business and it only seemed natural. You know, they were getting into their, into their sixties and by then it wasn't their fifties, I guess, but it was, they were, 
they weren't in retirement age yet, but they were going to be walking down there soon. It seemed like I was being molded to take over that business. And my dad worked really hard. And that was, that was something that I, I was going to try to avoid. It wasn't that I was afraid of hard work, Mm -hmm. but it was, it seemed like it was, um, it was just demanding on this, on this rudimentary level of like standing up all day and, and being of servitude to the, you know, to the Richmond public. And I, I totally respect, and I think he's incredibly strong individual and, and all these great things because of that profession. But my dad came out of like, you know, the depression, being a kid in the depression and, and just knowing a different kind of, of obligation to himself, to his, to his ideas, his dreams. And I feel like in us not having had that experience and us having more of a, more opportunities in a sense to like see the world or as a, as a larger piece in our, in our part in it. And then having like, uh, just different ideas than maybe just making the money, you know, and just having a secure profession, maybe just more time, right? you know, we had more time to maybe play some of, some of our other options out before we fell into a career that was going to be like a nine to five. Like, like my dad was, my dad was eight to six every day for 36 years until they started slowing it down a little bit for another, you know, eight years before they finally just this year decided to close it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you went to Costa Rica with the money saved, which you guesstimate was roughly a thousand bucks for one year. Yeah. So you had a thousand dollars saved for one year of living in Costa Rica. Yeah. And how was that? I mean, were you, did you notice that being enough or was it hard to make that work or was it pretty easy just living off rice, beans and, and the, and the jungle that was providing for you? It was, uh, I remember money not being, I, I was frugal. I learned how to be frugal and, um, I was excited about, about not spending money. So I was fishing, I was spear fishing and catching fish. And then I had a kitchen. So, um, I learned how to cook a lot with coconut, you know, and then I went into the jungle. I had this guy, tiger shark. God, if he was listening to this, he'd appreciate. But, um, often it's other foreigners that, that can better translate an environment than the locals because Tiger Shark is a, he was a, he was a army brat kid raised in the Philippines, white boy, blue eyes. I think his parents might've been from Florida or something who showed me like how to like navigate the jungle, where to find bananas, where to find cacao and, um, like where to fish and where to surf. And, and the locals know all these things, but they don't know how to show you. So, so Tiger Shark, Greg, man, he, showed me those few things. And because of that, like I always had racimo bananas on my porch. And then, um, I learned how to cook with coconut, grating coconut and coconut grew everywhere around there. And then I got uh, a girlfriend from there who moved in with me. And between the both of us, we, we managed to make, uh, ends meet. And I started painting. So I did find odd jobs and painting signs. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, I remember coming down to visit you and and really having my eyes be open for the first time at the possibilities of this being a real like feasible lifestyle getting to see you doing what you were doing the way you were doing it. It was rough, but it was still like, it infected me to the core. And this was I knew from that moment, the life I wanted to lead forever. And I remember having goals at the time so that I had to go back and continue to really strive for those goals, which was me becoming a professional soccer player. I was really focused on that and and really wanted to fulfill that, see how far I could take it. Um, But I do remember that being the first time where I was like, this is it. This is once this is played out with the soccer thing, 
I'm coming back and living like this forever. Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, you came back and we drove back to Costa Rica to get Roxana, as you said, and you continued on from there. And, you know, I've always admired your ability. You have this, like, I don't know if it's a gift or a drive or whatever, but you're able to maintain a very calm presence in very uncomfortable situations, which is something like staying committed to the idea of hitchhiking from what Peru all the way around South America as one big loop for what, nine months. I think you were hitchhiking. Yeah. And you and I've done hitchhiking around the world together and I've never enjoyed it. I mean, being with you on the side of the road is great, but it's like, I've never really felt comfortable with sticking my thumb out, asking for rides. And you've always been really good to point out the magical moments that we do share where we meet that really nice family that picks us up and takes us home. And we formulate these friendships with, but still to this day, it's not my number one choice, but you have always stayed committed to it. And so what is that about? Is it just that love for meeting the new people or the idea of getting around the world cheaply or, or what do you think motivates you to continue to want to travel in that way? Yeah. Cause I still do like it and I still do do it sometimes. Like I, I hitchhiked to Managua mm -hmm. like eight months ago. Yeah. And of course people see me, they know me, they pick me up okay. and I end up driving with somebody I know. They're like, John, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. But, um, it was, uh, I think it's like gambling where it's the chance that you could like stumble upon something like incredible that you wouldn't have any other way. And it's also like, it's a good reality check. And when you're always like very self-sufficient, you don't need other people. That's the choice that we, we seem to make when we have that opportunity to make it. Basically we make money. So we create more space for ourselves, but with that space comes like often like a lack of a, a community in which we reflect our life off of or the community to, to ultimately like, like keep us in our perspectives in like a, in a re in a real place. And sometimes when you hitchhike, you're getting in touch with the, with, with randomness, you know, and there's something beautiful to that. And I still think some of some porn director is going to take me home and like feature me in their porno. <laughs> there's always that underlying. Always that Hasn't happened. We've been doing this for almost 30 years, yeah, <laughs> three decades, but we haven't, but we've had great experiences. Like so many profound things came out of us hitchhiking. I mean, I learned a lot about Islam and, and polygamy hitchhiking in Malaysia and meeting very, very respectable men who married handicapped women in their community to kind of take care, you know, of, of widows and, and less fortunate people. Um, that's real. That happens in Malaysia. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, Malaysia's Muslim country and there's, mm -hmm. and there's, uh, there's, you know, if you can afford it, you have multiple wives. But what it, what I learned is that it's not just for like, for sexual gratification. It's like, it's your obligation to the community to take the women less fortunate, you know, and this one particular guy had a couple handicapped wives. It wasn't about sex. I don't even think I had sex, but it was about him. And he was like, you know, he was the, he was a great businessman in his community and that was his way of giving it back. And there was room for it and space for it in his particular re religion and in society. And then, um, I mean, you and I know we got picked up in, in Sweden and, and got brought home to the Koenig family who, you know, are still friends and, and enlightening people. And they're, it's like you live vicariously through other people's experiences if you're paying attention. And I remember both, I remember their, their family story was touching to both of us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, uh, just, huge continuations of that. So 
if you drive your own car, you take a bus and put your face into a book, that was because we didn't have phones back then. Um, still, like you, you distract yourself with, with your own ideas and don't bounce them off of, of kind of the reality of society or, or don't reach out so much, then I think you can kind of get, I don't know, maybe stagnant, like you're breathing the same air. No, I hear you. That's, that's a really articulate way to say it. You know, like by distracting ourselves from the now, from the moment we're in, we miss that moment repetitively over and over with our phones. Back then we didn't have phones, like you said, so the books that we buried our heads in. But I mean, you know, we put ourselves out there in episode 10 for all you listeners, if you haven't heard it, you know, I articulate a bit about John and I traveling together, hitchhiking throughout Europe, then Russia, Mongolia, China. And and we did that together for a solid year. And that was a, intensely profound moment in my life that shaped again more of me and who I've become and drove me in different directions because I left John in Indonesia because I couldn't do it anymore I was burnt out we'd lost each like 30 pounds like emaciated malnourished he still loved to keep going and I was done and then he stayed for three more years and his adventure continued in so many rad beautiful ways where if I'm not mistaken, you taught English in Bangkok for a long time, and then you jumped on a bicycle and you rode your bike around all of China and Southeast Asia for another year. Is that correct? Yeah. And, you know, with these accumulation of experiences all kind of leaning towards the more extreme side of traveling, is there like one way you could sum it up, the the knowledge that you've acquired from it? Because, I mean, I know you didn't go the, the the stereotypical path of going to college and getting a formal education, but you have an education that surpasses 99.9% of most of this world based on the way you've traveled. And so is there some way you can like articulate that in a way that we can understand like what you've learned from that? I mean, I wouldn't even know where to start. Yeah. I mean, um, one of the, the, the few like catch all phrases that I think I hang on to is and this, this is because it's relatable to everybody. And that's that if you want to see the world, look down. So we're all, basically we're all, we all have the keys to all the doors and windows that, that, that can be unlocked. We all have them inside of us. When we travel, we're often expo- we're often brought, brought to an awareness of, of what keys we carry. And basically it's just like we're shining light. So sometimes it's different cultures, it's different philosophies. But um, if the end goal is like, if it's to be happy and satisfied, it's like we all have that potential. Some of us grab it different ways. Beyond that is where is where life can become like cluttered and confusing. Like when we believe that we have a certain amount of purpose or we have a, a destiny and we or we want to live life to its fullest, you know? I mean like projecting out into the future rather than and striving for that rather than, like you said, just looking down and knowing that you have all the keys right now to be happy if you should choose that. Exactly. Some of us need to go meditate with the Dalai Lama. Some of us need to go, you know, learn, you know, quantum physics. And some of us need to, to marry the right person and have the kids and, and do what it is that uh, their parents did or something. And we can be happy in, in any of those scenarios. So... Everything lies within uh, how we go about um, achieving it is is our own personal journey, and that's what makes us all beautifully unique. Mm. So often, like when I, I've had my moments of of 
being kind of ignorantly pretentious and thinking because of my my accomplishments that I have a greater understanding, which later I've then learned that not the case at all. Like somebody could be totally living in a, in a great sense of peace and tranquility that I've been striving for with a very conventional lifestyle. Um, the, the, the nice thing about what you're doing with this is you're allowing for people to have access to stories that we didn't have access to. Um, you know, we were led to believe that if you didn't do certain things in a certain order, which in Southern California was 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 pretty materialistic, mm-hmm. that you would fail. And I guess if we had stayed there, tried to live like we would, like we do, then yeah, we would have been failures. I'm not sure how, but we left and we found other place or places, and and we aren't failures. You know, we've we've gone on to like find what's right for us and and we're what's right for that so no i feel the same way absolutely let's maybe bring it up to present day because you know we touched upon that in the beginning and you've you've structured you designed a life in southern nicaragua that is incredible you know you have a beautiful house on the beach you have a boat parked in front of your house you have i I guess you call a small little resort you know and can we talk about how that came about and what brought you here and, and how this sort of all played itself out. Yeah. Cause your business here is called Gigante Bay. Yeah. That's the parent company. Is that correct? Yeah. The umbrella business. Okay. And it actually attributes back to you inviting me down here in 2006 to uh, help you drive boats mm-hmm. for that, uh, for GFS that you started with Zach Carroll and, and Jack back in 2005, right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And so I came on a couple years later and, helped drive those boats for three seasons. Mm-hmm. Um, at the, uh, sometime in the, in the middle of my third season, I had met a Spanish lady and got her pregnant. So, uh, left the volunteer position that I, that I had obligated myself to for your business and then started that family. And her and I had met here and she had a sister in Managua. So we ended up coming back here because that seemed like the natural thing to do. I had been here for those three seasons and comfortable. And Spain was kind of reaching a, a starting a, a the beginning signs of a depression. Because you had moved to Spain with her. Yeah, to have that baby. Mm-hmm. So I was there for 11 months. And then we came back here for four months and then had the baby ultimately. And so for people thinking of the math of the gestation of a baby, there was a miscarriage involved. So it ended up where... We came back here to check out the, the health system, ultimately had the baby in California. And when my first daughter was six months old, Anicha, we, then that's when we came back mm-hmm. and we, we, we really dug in our heels and started to make a life for ourselves. And it, what was the plan? It was you- just to come down and rent surfboards and, and kind of live on the beach. Um, we knew Peely could cook and we knew that the, the area was built, was growing. We didn't think to this extent, but, um, between, yeah, just resourcefulness, positive thinking, and, and kind of, uh, just, um, just basically being where you want to be. And one of your guests from GFS, a young kid actually, and I don't even think he understood what he was telling me, but his father told him, the first house you build, make it your vacation house. Mm. <laughs> and that stuck with me. I'm sure he's forgotten it. <laughs> I don't yeah. know, but, and then, um, sure enough, when shit hits the fan, you go to your, you go home you're in your vacation house. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we were doing here. The relationship didn't work out, but, um, can I ask like how you, 
you know, had the baby and were able to, you know, finance the move down here? Were you working with your dad again back in California? Is that how you were doing it? For then it was opening a, a hardware store with my uncle. Okay. So was, back to the hardware business for like yeah, a year yeah. to save some capital. Uh-huh. Okay. And yeah, a little less than a year. And that was, um, no, that wasn't, how did we? Because because working for my uncle was the money that I used to buy the van for us to drive down. That's right. So this one might, must have been working for my dad yeah. in Richmond. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And never, we, we, uh, we qualified for Medicare in California. So the baby was really inexpensive, 450 bucks wow. for a $20,000 experience, Berkeley Alta Bates, the hospital I was born in. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, had enough where we were comfortable and also, based on where you and I had been, like, like we were very resourceful, resilient. Peely wasn't, I think that was also part of the, the failure of our relationship is I have a, 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 a higher threshold for discomforts and she, what she didn't. So that puts stress on the relationship. But, uh, in the end she's here and very successful based on the growth of the area. And then, um, and then that's when when we came back and we moved back into Gigante after trying a couple months of, of camping over in our lot in La Vista, the first property we bought and then, um, small restaurant and then bought the hostel that you and I had lived in for those three years during my, during my, uh, volunteer days and then turning it into a, to really kind of the largest business in town, which is a hostel bar and restaurant. And then with the you know, in those early days, I had an uncle who came down and believed in the idea and saw the potential and and financed the, the buying of the, the other properties. So in the end, I think we had 13 properties and nine houses. We built my mama house and some of her bungalows and then um, went on to have a second relationship where I had two more kids and that also failed. So now I just look for time with my kids, which I get, and try to take care of my responsibilities and pay for the bills. It, I feel like this is a big boat and I don't really think I have any necessary qualifications to be driving this boat other than I do have the capacity and the, and the, and the, the ability to drive this boat. Mm-hmm. A lot of us are on this boat. Figuratively speaking. Figuratively like speaking. Like this enterprise that you've now built. <laughs> yeah. a big boat. That you it's don't... a big boat. A bunch of people are on it. We have 15 Nicaraguan employees and uh, we have that many volunteers. Um, it's the largest... It's, we, well, we got, we got word that we are the largest, uh, beer sellers of the county. So huge accomplishment. Congratulations. Thank you very much. I'm glad everyone's getting drunk, (laughs) which is actually a tricky thing because I'm still like a, a a semi-practicing Buddhist and I don't know how I feel contributing to, to society's, uh, (laughs) debauchery, debauchery (laughs) and, and distractions by selling, uh, tobacco and alcohol. Yeah. But it does p- help pay bills, and paying bills helps keep the boat afloat. Yeah. I was going to really hope to maybe bring some more clarification and focus into this enterprise and how you built it and, like, the realities of it. Because this podcast is meant to, you know, inspire people to think about these options and, and possibly, you know, take that leap to come to an environment like this and start that little dream hostel they had, the little dream restaurant, that whatever they've been dreaming of in a place like this. Um, and I think you have a perspective far more vast than my own at this point of like, what's the reality of it when you do take this on, you know, is it, you work, is it like the four hour work week kind of book where you, you know, put a few hours in and like, you're, you're just making 
ends meet? Are you making tons of money? Like, can you just give us perspective on the reality of this enterprise and your life as it is today? Either taking us through a day or just the frustrations, the the reality of it, please. Yeah. It's, it's basically, I was going to, I was going to go two quotes. One was Mike was uh, Mike Tyson. Everyone's got a plan until they get hit in the face. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, but I didn't have much of a plan. When I think I have plans, I've been hit in the face okay. and then they're worth nothing. Yeah. Um, and then the other one is, is it's like a, it's like, if you believe in it and it's your baby, it's uh you deal with it. It's like having a kid who's, who's got down. That's like living in Nicaragua <laughs> and doing, having a business here. It's like, it's handicapped, you know, mm-hmm. everything's moving at a slower rate at a, at a, a kind of a, an un, uh, you undetermined space and you can't really predict well what is going to happen because it's like having a kid with down syndrome and you love your kid. Like I love this business and you commit to it through and through and it's a business. So it has a different, it has a different, you have a different relationship with it and like death and stuff. Like, like I'd let this business die before I let my kid with down syndrome die. Mm -hmm. But, um, my commitment to it within, within reason has, has been a similar idea in that I've, I've committed to a lifestyle and the lifestyle, which it's funny in that it's, it, I haven't, I don't have my daughters with me all the time. So I came down here to raise my daughters on the beach and raise them like little, you know, mean and lean little, little surf kids that, you know, knew how to make fire and speak two languages and ride horses and sailboats. And I, I do get to do that partially. So to the best of my ability, I'm trying to sustain a business to, to, uh, to complete that idea of myself doing what I wanted to do. And that's a, it's also a tricky thing when you start and when you do business and you have more opportunities and the thing gets a little out of control because it's a, it's a monster now. I mean, this business is, um, you know, it just, it, it, it has like a lot of moving parts and there's a lot of, a lot of people are dependent on it you know, for their livelihood. And a lot of uh, foreigners are dependent on it for a, a place that, like a sanctuary. And then it has its own, it's kind of its own presence of, of it of being a home away from home for a lot of people and an example for other people in their businesses. And if you're, if you're just, if you're patient and, and you're committed, you know, and you, and you have the right state of mind, which is something I got from Asia, mm-hmm then, um, then it's all possible. You know, it's like Nicaraguans do versions of it, you know, and then we, uh, Westerners do versions of it in other places. And if you're just able to like appreciate the thing that you came down here for, which in our case was surfing, you know, and it's kind of changed a little bit to sailing. I get a lot of peace and tranquility from those sailboat trips. And then, um, and then you love the place. And I still love Nicaraguans, even though I've had a, I've had a hard second separation from the mother of my two daughters. That's, uh, that's really financially crippling me, but, um, who's a Nicaraguan, who's a Nicaraguan mm-hmm. and using the system to kind of, to have this, uh, this influence on like how, how badly I'm, I'm, I'm financially being pressured because of it. But in the end, like I still look at Kevin, you know, I, we got employees, Miguel, Julian, you know, the girls in the kitchen. And I love these people. I mean, I love people. Yeah. And they're just, they're the people here that are, I mean, we learned how to be polite when we were young and 
that politeness and, and that genuine concern for them, their well-being and their kids. You know, mm-hmm. I'm a parent now, so I know how it feels when, you know, your kid has gripe, which is, you know, a cold or the flu for more than three days and the concern and how it affects your day. And like, I see that in them and I never consider myself empathetic per se, but like I genuinely want to believe in mankind and my role in it and, and make a better life for all of us. And all I realize is that I'm actually driving this boat in a direction where we get to, uh, where we get to accomplish those goals and, just, just, uh, fulfilling our responsibilities for start, you know, and then having fun along the way is what, what we kind of want to do. Yeah. Yeah. Is this uh like successful monetary enterprise? I mean, are you making money hand over fist? Are you breaking even? Like, can you give us any perspective on, you don't have to give us exact numbers. But yeah. I mean, you- no, you can break even in a story like this. Um, my personal life has my personal decisions, you know, and who I've had babies with and stuff like that has um has made it has made like money that i could be saving but um go you know like i i spend a lot in alimony and stuff Mm -hmm. so yes it is it is lucrative to an extent but it's in the end it's kind of like i think maybe if you get in real estate at a point like okay you can really make a lot of money fast Mm -hmm. um but the the trend that i've seen with that is like it goes just as fast there's very few windows of opportunity to make a lot of money without working really hard mm, and um, get out with that money. Exactly. Or yeah. invest it. So you're set up or something. Mm-hmm. So my experience has been that of, uh, you put your head down and you work w- on what, what is that you really love, which, which for us here, it's accommodating people and introducing them to the Tola Emerald, Emerald coast, you know, area of Nicaragua. Mm-hmm. And, and I really like doing that. And that has been lucrative because this particular area of Nicaragua has grown. You know, it was luck. It was, you brought me here. Mm-hmm. I didn't, I mean, I, I rimmed the whole South American continent and Central America, Mexico, looking for a place that I didn't even know I could have been looking for. And it ended up where you just brought me to here that ended up being the, the next best place to be actually of these years and of Nicaragua, like yeah, for investment for kind it was of everything, everything. Yeah. So for, for me to dump money into this story, it, it was a good decision. Mm-hmm. So here I am working it. And what, another analogy that, that, uh, I don't know if it was told to me or, or, or I came up with it. I don't want to take credit for it because I really don't think it was mine, but it was that of, um, it's like I took off on a wave Mm-hmm. I took off on a wave and it was a set wave mm-hmm. and it was one of the first of the sets mm-hmm. and I'm in the pit mm-hmm. and I'm getting barreled. Mm-hmm. Right. And there's a bunch of people who want to come down who are going to pick off other set waves and there's a lot of waves and this place is, is not over surfed, I guess is a way to look at it. And I'm just deep in the barrel and sometimes I'm deeper than I want to be. And what I'm hoping for is in 10 years, you know, cause we used to live in, Co- well, in Costa Rica in 98, we yeah. were 99, we were, um, we saw Costa Rica a lot like this place now. So, and we saw where, how it grew and what the land values did and stuff like that. And so what I'm hoping for is that I get, I don't wipe out. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I got a good line, you know, in this barrel and I'm deep and I see the light and I think I can make it and I'm still pumping. 
And that's the idea is I'm going to pump my way out of this barrel and it's going to take 10 years. And when I come out <laughs> and I pull out the back, maybe I catch another little wave, yeah. <laughs> you know, my little retirement wave, a bigger boat and some sail tours, but no more developments or building or restaurants. Gosh, yeah. What a, you know, what a, what a handful. And it's a beautiful analogy. Yeah. I'll claim it once I pull out okay. <laughs> until I do that. Cool. You know, what can somebody who wants to come down and visit this, uh, Gigante Bay, experience like what kind of things do you offer what what can they expect when they come here to experience you and Higante Bay as a company and a place kind of like a, a great eclectic mix of people from all over the world feeling like they're in a place that's their own I mean we literally hang flags from all all over the world you know uh, under the palapa that is that is the restaurant and the yoga studio and the way we speak a lot of languages the way we you know, eat a lot of different kinds of food, baba ganoush and hummus and, and, uh, sushi, you know, and Mexican burritos and typical Nicaraguan food. And, and then, um, we're open, you know, we're open. The, these tables are fantastic where we have, and that's what I like most about this place. And I'm so happy that my daughters have access to because we're not a traveling family. And that would be my next solution is to like buy a, a little camper and drive my family around the world to get a taste of what it is to, to be a, a part of the globe. But, um, here you get the same essence in, in that when you sit at one of these tables, you know, we got a kid from Israel, Israel, we got girls from Argentina, we got German boys, we got that German girl too, right? We have boys from Venezuela. Uh, we have an Italian kid. We just have this, this great eclectic mix of people from different places of the world that have different perspectives on, on issues and, and situations like Donald Trump being elected a president, mm -hmm. you know, or, uh, you know, or like, um, like Brexit or like Syrian refugees or like, uh, Daniel Ortega's policies or like Venezuela. And whenever we get to talking, it's not like you have, I think that's often a very beneficial thing that you're not surrounding yourself with, with open like-minded people, but not very idealistic like-minded people. Mm -hmm. So it gives me and my daughters and my best friends perspectives that are the most valuable in being compassionate and understanding. Mm -hmm. And that brings a sense of peace. Right. Yeah. What kind of activities can someone expect to do if they can, you know, fun things that you offer? Um, starts with beer drinking on the beach. All right. <laughs> yeah. We sail a lot. We like to sail. The waves are world class. So we, when, we, when it's pumping, we're surfing. And then, um, we rappel here. We have 10 horses, which are fun. I've, I've gotten into that. And that's something that, uh, Horseback riding. Horseback cowboy. cowboy, man. I mean, my mom was raised with a horse and she made sure I, I grew up knowing how to ride, but it isn't until lately, you know, my daughter wanted a pony. So you get your girl a pony, mm -hmm. you know, that's what you do if you can afford it. You want a pony kid? You got a pony. And then, uh, you end up buying your mom a horse, you a ho you're, you know, you're myself a horse and a few more horses to make sure that the packs, the herds complete. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, that's been great. I like wearing boots, shit kickers. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, we do, we just do a lot of odd stuff, like do yeah, archery, full moon parties and things yeah. like this, full moon parties. The partying is here is very natural mm -hmm. because it's such a pretty place. Mm -hmm. Gigante Bay doesn't promote drugs, but people come here to do them. Mm -hmm. And it's just a very beautiful place. The beach is clean. Um, the Gigante proper only consists of, it's a sandbar. So it has an, an estuary on one side, a, pl a floodplain. And then the beach. So it's only this mound of sand that we've created this town on 
So it has very limited growth potential. Mm -hmm. So it makes all our spaces very valuable. Okay, the hillsides can be developed, but as far as like downtown, you don't get a, we, we, we wouldn't expect like a San Juan reproduction because um, you have, you don't, unless someone were to fill the floodplains, which I don't think is legal, it's going to be just two lots or one lot wide. Mm -hmm. So there's only, you know, a total of, of maybe 30 spaces where people can actually make, you know, a beachfront story yeah. and everything else is going to be removed. Yeah. Yeah. Now I, I've gotten to witness your growth here and, and see how you started to ra raise your family. And it's really cool to watch, you know, little Amici, you take her to school on horseback some days. You sometimes throw in the sailboat and you'll sail her up to school and then make her go through the waves to get to her class. I mean, the memories that that little girl is going to have is just so profound and valuable. And she doesn't even have the context right now to really understand it. Yeah. She has been back to the States to really go to a, you know, first world school and talk to her friends about like, Oh yeah, it's normal for me to go to school on horseback or sail to school or, you know, bring my pet iguana to school or whatever. And it's been really beautiful to watch you raise your kids in that environment and develop those sorts of habits and feelings in them that they are free and they get to do what they want in a, in a safe way, obviously that is going to give them perspective on the world that, I mean, nobody gets yeah. the way that you're giving it to them. You know, they're so much better for that, to have that in their lives, have you in their lives constantly. So, I mean, hats off to you, man. Congratulations. You've done a really beautiful thing here. Thanks. I appreciate it. And uh, thank you for coming on the show. It's been really nice talking to you. No problem. I feel like we got a lot more to say. Yeah, you want to keep going? <laughs> no, we can do it another time. I'm good yeah, for let's do it. We'll, do, we'll wrap this up now. We'll do episode uh, follow-up with you, and uh, we'll bring you back on in a few episodes. Okay. All right. Sounds love you, buddy. Thanks for I love you too, up. man. Right on. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspires you to think about your life situation, where you're at, and possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that... I interview, inspire you to go out, spread your wings, and try something new, to live a different lifestyle that maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it, it's the perfect one for you. And I'll see you next time.